Welcome to Skeptics, the show where we take a deep dive into the world of tech news and research. I'm Josh. And I'm Diana, and we're back this week with our second, well technically our third, but our second batch of guests uh, this season. So today we have Maggie McGrath, who's a uh, DPhil student at the Oxford Internet Institute, one of our friends and colleagues here, and she will be talking to us today about design disinformation. Hey Maggie, how's, how are you doing? How's Hi. your term going? <laughs> It's going all right, flying by as usual. Yeah, amazing. Okay, great. Um, So this is really exciting because we sometimes have people come on and talk about things that we're sort of familiar with. I have to say, this isn't something I had never heard the term design disinformation before until you sent us this document that we're kind of, which we had to read because otherwise I personally (laughs) would have had very little of interest to say. Um, So maybe the first thing for our guests is you could just tell us what design disinformation is. Yeah, so basically what, I'm, uh, what I'd like to talk to you about today is this idea that, I mean, there's so much, uh, especially in the world of internet research, on misinformation and disinformation online. Um, it occupies a, like a huge portion mm. of the sort of funding and um, like research focus. And uh, that you know, usually pertains to politics or, I mean, certainly COVID-19 misinformation received a lot of attention. Uh, but the this idea that aesthetics are sort of, I mean, you think of photos of sort of like a fig plant or mm-hmm. um, a, a nice interior photo or mm-hmm. you know, sort of a, a jumper that you might find you know, appealing to be sort of so innocuous in comparison, like relative to the sort of really weighty, um, you know, things like election misinformation, for example. But there is still some sort of like kind of subtle, insidious. There, there is a reason we should care about. I, I wouldn't call it intentional misinformation, but there mm. is sort of there's this um, ability online, the way the algorithms work, and the way we're sort of relying on them to um, kind of tell us or teach us about what what we're finding online. That they can can be sort of altering what we do see and what we don't see, and sort of making some voices less visible. And when that shapes what. Um, what designers are designing and what we expect and value aesthetically, um, it's sort of, it's, you know, advancing certain voices at the expense of others. Mm, that's so. really interesting. Yeah, I mean, as you say, like, there's loads of focus on misinformation in, in, in this building, what we study <laughs> in, in, in our, our corner of, of academia. Um, one thing which I think I always get struck by when in these conventional conversations about misinformation is the idea that it's some foreign state actor that's deploying them on behalf of those international goals, or it's very much a, a product of the international relations system, and obviously we're living with a lot of those consequences right now. But as you say, as I think your research is grounding, it can be much more ground, ground level than that, if that's the right way of putting it. So what are some of the maybe examples that you might talk about um, when we think about this more aesthetic view of misinformation? Yeah, so uh, so this summer I was doing field work on, uh, you know, kind of on this topic, and um, I'm very excited that I get to bring up Britney Spears. <laughs> Great. <laughs> First time on the podcast, I think. <laughs> um, what came up, so I did, uh, I did an exhibit this summer basically kind of explaining this, to- this kind of research problem visually because I found that participants were kind of having a hard time understanding it um, when I sort of you know, would relay the topics. So I'd sort of talk about computation and algorithms and people would ask about Dolly or sort of go mm. into sort of generative visual potentials and not sort of reflecting on kind of using the images that we already kind of interact with online. Yeah. So uh, so I had participants do a task where they were making a mood board, which is sort of designer. I, my background's in professional design, so this was a very kind of common thing for me to use, but 
just to the listeners, um, uh, it would be sort of, you know, maybe a collection of images or something you would assemble. Say you were remodeling your bathroom and you wanted to send something off to the architect. I mean, that's like, you know, a fantasy that I have someday. <laughs> um, or, you know, it could just be a vision board of like, you know, I want to, you know, dress like this, you know, so-and-so, yeah. or, you know, manifest sort of things like that. Um, it can be sort of really formally used professionally, or it can be something sort of informally that people do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Pinterest, obviously, was is probably the most kind of popular use of this tool, where people kind of can make boards of, like, collections of images that they find inspiring. It could be a board of plants, or it could be a board of recipes, mm-hmm. or whatever. So there's many different applications of it. So what I had people do was either make the, you know, sort of, it was a gamified task where they either got an analog uh, mood board task where they had to sort of flip through books and magazines with no algorithms involved, Mm. or they could sit down at a desktop um, and do and search online. And most people wound up on Pinterest. And when I asked people to search, the prompt was Spanish Villa. Spanish? Um, Spanish Villa, which I incorrectly assumed was going to be a very easy prompt for British people because I figured everyone in Britain goes on package holidays to Spain. (laughs) Turns out Not it was, so much anymore, perhaps. It turns out it was a little trickier than I realized, and that the audience in King's Cross was much more international than I anticipated. So that actually provided some really interesting insights. But when people sat down to search for Spanish Villa on Pinterest or keyed in Spanish Villa, the first thing that pops up is kind of luxury real estate photos from uh, Los Angeles, mm. including Britney Spears' old house. Okay. So... It technically is in the style mm. of a Spanish villa, but it's not a house in Spain. No. Mm-hmm. And if you're sort of using Pinterest to sort of teach you about yeah. what a Spanish villa is, it's it's you know kind of valuing celebrity, it's valuing luxury mm. real estate, it's valuing all these kind of you know parameter terms mm. that kind of funnel into what you see, uh, and even as I think someone that might be more, you know, I, more knowledgeable about that. I think if you were, I could see where a designer that's busy at their desk and has, you know, has already eaten three meals a day at their desk mm-hmm. might just be like, right, done. Mm. I, I found a picture. I'm going on to the next task, sort of, mm. where you might not be as um, discriminant or kind of reflect on the, mm. you know, kind of provenance of that image. Um, that's not really something that. Uh, when you think of sort of aesthetic photos that you sort of kind of get into that no that's really interesting and just to make a link between my work as well I guess uh, it's something I've been thinking about a lot to do with India because my work's about storytelling platforms in India and I've been thinking about how when you google things like um, I mean I don't often do this but like Indian chairs or like Indian design it comes up with in the style of Indian design but not actually by Indian designers or originating from India or actually having a kind of link to India at all. It's mm-hmm. just the aesthetic. Sure, like um, Paisley, sort of. Or... Yeah, or like, I mean, there's a great piece about this in Lilia Rani's book, Chasing Innovation, about, um, you know, like handmade things, handwoven, sometimes a little bit ugly, but like, you know, it's handwoven, so you feel better about it being ugly. Mm-hmm. And what that actually does in this kind of instance is that it gives us an impression of India that's not real or not modern, um, but it also doesn't give the people who are designing this kind of work in India any kind of financial credit. Um, you know, these people aren't benefiting from their, the Indian aesthetic, quote-unquote, being taken to other countries. So what are the kind of downsides, I guess, of design disinformation in this case? Like, it sounds like it kind of helps us create an impression of the world that's not really true. 
But, you know, in, if we're using the word disinformation, we have this quite strong impression of like how disinformation can kill people in the case of the COVID pandemic. So what are the parallels, I guess, if there are any between these yeah, different so, kinds I mean, of Yeah, so I think first off, I would say that the, as I've gotten into this topic a little bit more, the more appropriate term might actually be misinformation mm. and not disinformation because misinformation is less intentional, whereas disinformation mm. is sort of like the the really like intentional, um, you know, horse ivermectin is going to cure COVID sort of yeah. like type of like information. So, so I don't think that this is intentionally, I don't think someone like sat down and was like, ha ha ha, I'm going to like, <laughs> fool everyone about what a Spanish villa looks like. Yeah. And, you know, in some respects it is still, you know, it's, it's, it's a subtle thing where it's, it's not a hundred percent, um, not accurate either. Mm-hmm. So it's this very kind of, you know, how, how accurate do you want it to be or how kind of representational of what you're kind of, perhaps looking for, do you want it to be? How, how do you want to structure mm. your research? But I think that when we think about how, um, I think this is like it's really tricky from a research perspective, but I guess this isn't, I don't have to kind of prove my research right now. So um, and from a causality perspective, if you sort of look at, I mean, that early stage of design, it, when I'm ta- what I'm talking about or what I'm researching is when you're kind of coming up with inspiration. And then loads of other things happen, and like there's a lot of other forces involved before you... Uh, kind of reach a final outcome so if you're an architect or if you're a, a knitwear designer like I used to be or mm. sort of there's you know I mean there's kind of capitalism to think about global supply chains the programs that we use the design tools that we use kind of you know like the sketching or you know kind of modeling programs we use and so it's it's tricky to kind of parse out how much that early stage inspiration really imprints upon the mm. final result because there's so many other things that are also kind of imprinting on it as well yes. But having said that, no one or very, very, very few people are looking at that inspiration mm-hmm. like kind of from a critical lens and sort of looking at how it could be sort of optimized and aggregated and perhaps only representing certain viewpoints at the expense of others. So I think the the reason it's a problem to me is that it's, I mean, it's precisely what you're saying about India too, that like, you know, it's sort of it, certain narratives mm-hmm. and um, aesthetics get valued in a way that um, I mean we were just in Dublin this weekend and we were in this one neighborhood that was clearly gentrifying where you kind of had a few sort of um, you know some like kind of rough looking off licenses and mm. um, a bedding uh, like it's not Ladbrokes but sort of you know a bedding st- um, salon or whatever they call them and, uh, and then bookies yes. yes thank you sorry yeah. I was really struggling for that word um, but then we had this, there was like a, it was a very clearly, like you could see from a mile away, it was sort of a hipster coffee, like independent yeah. hipster coffee shop. It was lovely. We had really nice, I, I, I like those kinds of places. I had a really nice flat white and nice open faced <laughs> brie and mushroom yeah. sandwich. But, but the aesthetics on the sign, the way that like the typeface of the logo, the mm. sort of, um, the way that it's visually communicating to me was sort of like, right, that's a place that I want to go eat and have lunch. Uh, and it's very welcoming to me at sort of my you know level of privilege and income etc but it probably isn't very welcoming for the people no. that have been living in that neighborhood for a while and it does drive up costs and prices and, yeah. yeah and and so that it kind of ties into um i think the way that aesthetics tie into like value both values and what we like consider to be a good aesthetic and a bad aesthetic so yeah. you know sometimes that indian aesthetic can be 
considered quite good when it's in like a luxury country home is like just absolutely of it and not mm. maybe like a not too Indian perhaps. yes exactly um exactly so it ties into what we value another example I think that um, is quite good to understand sort of why you know it, it's perhaps more um it's not it's not just a foregone conclusion that like capitalism is making this all sort of you know value the same things perhaps or and it sort of gets into I hate to you know, I know Heidegger's kind of cancelled right now but it, it, the concept of breakdowns makes the most sense to explain mm. this I think that mm. we sort of kind of treat the aesthetics of if a new restaurant opens up in town that it's going to have a certain mm. look and feel to it that that's sort of a foregone conclusion but it's not it's sort of a value and a yeah. power that aesthetics have value and aesthetics have power attached yeah. to it speaking, so. speaking of the power of aesthetics so you mentioned in your first uh, answer about Dali which is obviously doing the round so those who don't know this is a new tool that's been kind of slowly released to the public that lets you kind of put in prompts and get out AI generated artwork essentially um, and I think in some ways, as you said, there is some difference between that and between what you study, because in your case, you're looking at the use of algorithms to kind of filter and order content as opposed to produce it. Mm-hmm. But I guess at the back end, in some ways, those systems look quite similar, right? Because in one case, what you're studying is a series of images or symbols all meaning the same thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas what Dali, I guess, does is, in layman's terms is crush a lot of ideas together into a single mm-hmm. image. So if you kind of play with that idea at all and think about how that might might relate to and how it might also differ from, from mm. your own work. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. I mean, I think that's how you kind of wind up with, like, now people are starting to post a lot of, you know, like, the I don't know if you saw the salmon in the river where it was pieces yes. of the supermarket, uh, mm. you know, kind of cut fillet, fillets of salmon that <laughs> sort of jumping through the river. Um, but, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I haven't done much stuff. I haven't investigated Dali that much, but I think that that would absolutely become very clear that in in theory there's sort of infinite possibilities with mm-hmm. it but I imagine that if you start to look at quite a few people's um, inputs that they start to look quite similar and it also ties into the keywords that we use as well and the sort of language around the keyword and you know which is usually still sort of anglophone centric and um, you know the sort of the language that we use to sort of you know to a certain extent we might have an image in our head of what we're expecting to see mm-hmm. but it's tied to like language that we mm-hmm. have and we know. Um, so yeah. I think that's true with Dolly as well. You sort of you would sort of have an idea of what you're mm-hmm. expecting it to generate. Yeah. 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 Maybe maybe the fun of Dolly is when it doesn't do the thing that mm-hmm. you were expecting it to do. Yeah. And then that's why we find it funny and that's why there is this big trend of people sharing Dolly images. Or just kind of uncanny, right? Like somewhere between what we expect and what we don't expect. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, there's that whole thing about it doesn't do faces very well. So, like, sometimes the faces look like they're melting a little bit because it's mm-hmm. hard to get a good likeness. Mm-hmm. And so we're sort of sharing it because it's it's overblown almost what you think it was going to be. Mm. Um, I'm really interested in this idea of aesthetics having power and aesthetics not being, you know, something that have value attached to them. And But also in what you were saying about inspiration, because, you know, we talked about, like, inspiration and this idea of plagiarism, I guess, as well. What what do you think yeah, design disinformation or misinformation, sorry, I should say, does <laughs> to this idea of, yeah, like inspiration? And is that something you're examining specifically in your work? Like, Yeah, I'm trying to get into it more, which is kind of what I wanted to speak about it today because I'm just sort of, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm half expecting to speak about this to the broader OII community and get totally like ripped apart because <laughs> there's so many people that are serious disinfo people that might mm. not kind of, like or, the language <laughs> yeah but um but I do think uh but yeah I think it's something that it really warrants attention sort of kind of 
perhaps, I mean, I don't mean to like equate it directly to COVID vaccine misinformation. No. It's not a one for one by any means, mm-hmm. but, but I do think that it kind of warrants some attention, some more critical inquiry, because right now there's very little sort of mm. um, understanding of how these images that, I mean, if you're not on Instagram or, I mean, it, most people are on some sort of image-based social media platform mm-hmm. and social media is getting going increasingly image-based yes. right? the, in terms of the way, you know, reels or, you know, I mean, TikTok. Now, now the TikTok aspect ratio is informing, you know, basically, you know, what YouTube and so true, Instagram yeah. and, um, you know, Facebook's mm. um, video content now. So, mm. uh, so, I mean, it's increasingly, yeah, I mean, I think that images are only going to become more prevalent in terms of how we kind of share and relate to it, one another. So like thinking about where that content comes from, because it's, you know, aspects of our, you know, the, the kind of politics and um, race and gender. And there's, there's aspects of misinformation that are receiving a lot of critical attention that they deserve, but that this sort of, a, a, the fiddly fig plant might seem really innocuous, but there's something to, I picked the Fiddly most, most difficult example. Subway <laughs> tiles. Let me pick subway tiles. Yeah. Talk about subway tiles. Who decided those were cool? Who decided, or who's benefiting from them being mm. cool? Who um, continues to who continues to incorporate them because they saw them being used somewhere? And yeah. where are they being distributed to now? As the supply chain increased, the mm. production of subway tiles is, are they more available in different markets now because they were first cool? in, you know, London or Holland or someplace yeah. where, like, that, you know, the sort of, you know, northern, yeah. kind of, northern European or North American design, you know, kind of leaders might have thought that, you know, kind of pinpointed something as being interesting, so. Well, now we're on to the subject of who benefits from mm-hmm. the production of, of social media and, and uh, online activity. Perhaps it's a good time to segue. Yeah, to... absolutely. I should just say um, Maggie, well, Maggie agreed to join us not only to talk about her research, but also to talk about maybe the big topic of the last week. Um, I'm sure many of you have heard about the Twitter takeover. And if you're not on Twitter, well, good for you probably at this point. <laughs> um, but my, but yeah, I mean, let's just open up the floor now. Just think about that a little bit. First of all, Maggie, um, where for, before we change topics, where can people find you and what kind of upcoming places might people be able to see your research? Well, not on Mastodon. <laughs> soon. I have no interest in figuring that out. Um, it's easy. <laughs> <Is> <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll discuss it. it, it I can do it. It's easy. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, maybe 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 Mastodon, but for now, for now, um, for now, I'm still on Twitter at Maggie Selfie, and um, I'm also on Instagram as Design Selfie. So. Great, fantastic. Okay, so big news coming out the last week. We've talked about it so much on this podcast. We've gone back and forth between with how important we think it is and how much we want to talk about it. At this point, it feels like it is something that's occupying not only our brain space, but the brain space of like a lot of people. I was in a restaurant yesterday and the person next to me was talking to her friend quite excitedly about uh, Twitter and Elon Musk. And I felt like, okay, I can't ignore it anymore. The big news in the last couple of days has been Elon Musk charging people for the blue tick, which initially was actually going to be something like $20 or that was the rumor. And now is... uh, But he's just shooting from the head. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like how what what's the value you put on being verified? Is well, it eight dollars? Let's just. Or throw is it, it out negative ten dollars? Yeah, 
creators be, being paid for, yeah. <laughs> for being prominent voices on Twitter. Oh, absolutely. And there's such a weird kind of sense here of we're maybe seeing Twitter be chained in front of us. And it's kind of a shame because we have talked a lot, as much as it's not the biggest deal in the world, we do talk a lot about how we quite like Twitter. Um, in some ways, you know, they re- like relatively good with marking things like misinformation compared to other platforms. Um, we talked a lot about Twitter and the Indian government and how they've actually been one of the few platforms to stand up to the Indian government. Um, you know, I definitely waste a lot of time on Twitter. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but suggests that I like it. <laughs> I think it's particularly useful in the academic world. I mean, having come from fashion where I don't think Twitter no. makes mm-hmm. any difference. Absolutely. It doesn't really move the needle. But, I mean, even... I wound up getting some funding through a call that I saw on Twitter. Yeah. Yes. And that sort of information, flow of information, especially as I'm kind of studying a topic that's not too central to the OII, so I'm not mm. going to be seeing those calls, you know, through the department, even through Oxford, really. No one's really doing design at Oxford. So it's been a really useful platform on a personal level yeah. in some mm-hmm. respects, and I hope that doesn't change. But I, I'm with you on Mastodon. It feels like there was a platform that was gaining steam maybe in the like early 2010s called Ellis or Ella I already forget what it was called shows how much it lasted but um that was supposed to be the alternative to Facebook and it was everyone I knew was jumping off mm-hmm. at that time and yeah obviously we it didn't yeah. work, it didn't work did it so it kind of that's what this mastodon jump exodus feels like right now that I mean yeah mm-hmm. some people will jump off and create new communities there and that'll happen but is it going to replace Twitter? I don't think so. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think, you know, clearly one good reason people might want to stay on Twitter is they've got a lot of value, cultural capital, mm-hmm. or social capital built up on Twitter, which I, I totally understand. And, and for some people in some jobs or some life positions, it's, it's, uh, it's indispensable. You, you, can't, you, can't move, you can't leave it altogether, certainly. <laughs> but I think what this might do in the long run for those of us who do have some amount of flexibility in where we communicate, where we socialise, is that it might um, loosen and make a bit more flexible our idea of identity online, which I think is maybe overdue, because then mm-hmm. this blue tick thing really highlights this, right? For certain, for news channels, for certain important public figures and so on, having that blue tick that's kind of verified is really important to the, the general yeah. health of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. But for the rest of us who might want to be a bit more kind of, yeah, flexible or, or um, experimental even with identity, you know, I think every time a social network like this changes, either changes hands or changes structure or, or whatever, it is a chance to reflect and think, hmm, what am I getting from this social network via news and information, funding calls and so on, but also what am I putting into it and do I need to put that much into it necessarily? Mm-hmm. And do I need to put which part of myself do I need to put into it? So I think this sort of highlights the fact, un- unintentionally on Musk's part, has highlighted the fact that actually not that many social networks are necessarily essential for, for every aspect of your identity. And it might be a chance to, yeah, to, to explore different social networks, different platforms, different levels of anonymity and so on, and different ways of self-presentation. Mm-hmm. And that might be something that yeah. might be good that comes out of it. I think thinking about who this is likely to hurt, like the changes that Musk has proposed, which are a little bit of a... Um, I mean, it's just all a bit random and chaotic at this yeah. point. I don't really have a sense of where this platform is going, and I don't think Musk does yeah. either. Yeah. But, um, you know, one big thing about the blue tick thing, potentially, and if, it's, if they're removed altogether, is that, as we say, like people like journalists, it's good to know when information yeah. is being shared by a journalist rather than by someone pretending to be a journalist. So misinformation could definitely flourish on the platform in that way. That um, segues nicely into the article that I read about, uh, about Twitter and Musk. 
So basically, it was in The Verge. Um, Is it the Welcome to Hell article? Yes. 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 Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> um, yeah, but I thought that was very interesting that basically what Twitter provides you and does such a good job of is content moderation. Basically, it's UX making it a pleasant experience for most of its users to mm. be on Twitter and experience whatever that is that they're trying to experience on Twitter has been a, a negotiation of like not just content moderation and mm. like a, the sense of you know content matter either sitting in the global south you know like editing things but also the kind of negotiating all sorts of like federal and local laws in yeah. all these different environments you know they're negotiating with India they're negotiating with Iran they're negotiating in, in all these kinds of conflict zones and, and also that Musk needs to consider you know like his Tesla he's going to have to weigh Tesla sales against how he handles <laughs> these sort of political struggles with how Twitter like free speech is regulated yeah and and does he go up against the German government when he really needs <laughs> German Tesla sales very interesting yeah he's a business person with multiple kind of things on the boil really yeah <laughs> I, I hadn't really thought about this sort of conflicting that you know I mean Twitter and Tesla seem so different to each other that I hadn't really thought about them sort of having you know sort of a connection like that through how he handles this but it would be really interesting to see yeah um, what he chooses that. well I think for for us, it kind of feels like him being past this Twitter chalice is a little bit of, it's happened, is he enthusiastic about Twitter? I don't think so. So what are the kind of negative impacts of the potential changes that we're seeing? One thing that he has talked about, and again, we don't know at this point whether those things, the things Musk has talked about will actually come to fruition, but people who were permanently banned from the platform making their comeback to the platform Obviously, that could see hate speech being elevated and platformed again, which is something that Twitter was slowly but perhaps surely getting better at addressing. Um, Josh, what other kind of things do you think? Well, related to that, you know, slashing the workforce by up to seventy-five percent—it's been alleged—is definitely a big part of that. Um, and firing the head of online safety, as you as you say, like I think Twitter has been relatively good amongst the, mm. the larger platforms for kind of experimenting with some of the um, tactics it uses to not maybe block people, but um, mute them or yeah. de-rank them in the algorithm and so on. One promise that Musk made, and again, I have to wait and see whether this happens, is the idea of open sourcing Twitter's algorithm, mm. which on paper, I think, I mean, there's loads and loads of considerations about security and, and um, gaming the algorithm. But um, I think showing people how algorithms work, they can chill work, like it actually can be quite a useful way of provoking... Um, some more reflexivity about how people actually use the platform, mm. which can be really good. But of course, that would also potentially, you know, make it much easier for people to who, who want to spread hate speech or or misinformation to to do so. So that's another change I'll be watching for to see whether he follows through on that. And then, of course, the big one is is Donald Trump, hmm. um, who may announce his candidacy. I would say in, in about a month, um, with the midterms coming up next week. So this is a very live issue. I think he probably will run again because he wants to stay out of prison. Um, and so how and whether Trump comes back on the platform is going to be really important as well. Yeah. And I think it's one of the early decisions that Musk and his so-called council of, of elders uh, is going to have to deal with, um, which he's proposed to, to create. And that is another thing we'd be looking at. How does, does Twitter do a sort of oversight board style thing? Does Musk have complete control over it? Does he construct some separation of powers? But I, I'm sceptical about all of that, to be honest. Skeptical, indeed. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested. I mean, with the workforce, I, I mean, those numbers are devastating. If he if he was going mm. to cut that many jobs, and I really feel for the people that are all of a sudden really stressed out about losing their jobs. But I know that there's been cuts across the board in tech right now too. So mm. I don't know yeah. how much 
more drastic they'll wind up being compared to the way all tech workforces are shrinking at the moment. Mm-hmm. Not that that's ideal for the other work, workers in tech either, but that that's not necessarily, I mean, as dramatic as he mm-hmm. was about saying mm-hmm. the, the claims that he's making right now, I kind of feel like in the end, it might not be that much of a shrink compared to relative mm-hmm. to the rest of how the tech workforce is currently shrinking. Yeah. But, really, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not sure what the you know how that'll stack up and and how he goes about it too i mean mm. you know in terms of there's kind of really decent ways to let people go and there's really awful ways to do that too so mm-hmm. you know, and there's really yeah as we said the head of online safety and aspects yes. like content moderation letting people go from it's 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 kind of a statement as well that you're making i suppose yeah i think it feeds into you talked earlier about the link between twitter and tesla and i think this the, the kind of supposedly hands-on approach that musk is taking is really designed to kind of further cultivate this image of him as a Tesla-like mm. figure. You know, Tesla allegedly slept for 90-minute periods during the course of the day and, like, never stopped working. He was always on top of it. And the way that Musk has approached his running his businesses and also how he pre- presents the running of those businesses is that it's this sort of really hands-on, scientifically-minded person who's just going to manage to solve everything if he just works hard enough. Yeah. And I think that doesn't work with social media. No one person, certainly no one billionaire, can can manage a social network. And yeah. if he does lose that number of people, despite the, the caveat yeah. you mentioned, yeah. uh, it, it's going to be devastating. Yeah, and also I can very easily see him doing something, I mean, having worked in corporate climates where they'll be like, right, we've got consultants and we've yeah. decided we don't need this team. We lay everyone off. And then two years later, they hire that. You know, basically, instead of having the continuity and the like, yeah. you know, support for your business through that whole time, they hire new people because those people are long gone and have to like train yeah. them. A new team, so I could easily see that happening with all of his online safety, which mm-hmm. is just you know means that it'll just go through kind of a cycle that was totally unnecessary. In terms of- <laughs> yeah. Well, it feels like we'd be doing that anyway, to be honest, with yeah. the whole buy sell thing. But um, yeah, one thing that's unusual, maybe not unusual about this whole process, is that we have seen every news update on it all the time. We saw mm-hmm. like Elon entering the the Twitter offices. We saw people leave the building. We saw people, you know, that's that's incredibly unusual. <laughs> and the- the fact that we see that is, I think, a function of the fact that every journalist where they're sort is on Twitter. Because yeah. they have to be, but that is where they are, and that is where their attention is. And Musk is such a public figure as well, right? Mm. I mean, he thrives on being in the media and spotlight as much as possible. So this was a chance for him to position himself even more in the public, in the limelight mm. than yeah. he already was. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, in that respect, very much a vanity project that's playing out probably exactly as he wanted it to. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So I think that, um, you know, there's probably a lot more to come from this story. Uh, I was thinking actually about how the last time we did a podcast, um, was it this time that we were talking about Liz, about who would replace um, Liz Truss? Yeah, I think so. Two, uh, two weeks ago, long two, time in politics. Two, a long time in politics. And that feels a million years ago. And we had Liz Truss and she just resigned. And now we have Rishi Sunak. And then maybe in two weeks, I don't know. <laughs> no, well, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll see. We're, we're stuck for now. But I mean, in two weeks time, the Elon Musk story will probably have thrown up some new features that we have even considered yet yeah um but yeah will elon outlast a head of lettuce yeah yeah i know perhaps that's something that the daily star should get going but otherwise uh thank you so much maggie for joining us today yeah Yeah, we had a great time um talked about something that we never talked about before in the podcast which is exciting and we'll be back with some more guests um and we'll be sharing this link on twitter and maybe on mastodon if josh can i will absolutely. yeah josh can do that for us <laughs> so skeptic server why not excellent okay great we'll see everyone next time bye josh bye bye, bye.